We are going to continue this morning talking about Jesus, the light of the world, and particularly how He comes to give light to the entire world this morning. And so, I'm going to read to us the opening portion of John's Gospel up through verse 5. This is the Word of the Lord and it is eternally true. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that, had, that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's ask for God's blessing this morning. Father, help us in our weakness today. Give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see. Father, open our minds to the, by the power of your Spirit and give my mouth assurance and guidance that I would speak true things. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Jesus, again here in the opening of John's Gospel, we started several weeks ago talking about the fact that this idea of God being the maker of of all things, is such a prevalent theme throughout Scripture. And right here, it is the introduction to John's Gospel. He was the maker of heaven and earth. All things were made by His hand, including light. He owns it. He controls it. And so it is no big thing if He controls that sort of power for Him to forgive sins, for Him to bring blind eyes to sight. And then we talked last week about the compassion of God to see us and not consume us, but instead to answer us, to be a father to us, and not to consume us in His wrath and His might and His power, which He has every right to do. Um, over and over in the Old Testament, you'll see this uh, title given to God, the Lord of hosts. We sing it uh, when we sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, Lord Sabaoth. That's that. That's the transliteration of a Hebrew word, but it is always often translated Lord of Hosts or Lord God Almighty. It is the fact that He is the Commander of Armies, and so this is the title given to God in the Old Testament, and it is God enthroned in power that came. And it's interesting here how much attention is given to what that means for us. So I'm going to continue reading a good chunk of the first chapter of John. So if you just turn back again, starting at verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, not the writer of the book, different John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, nor of the will of the flesh, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He comes after me, and he ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only begotten Son who is at the Father's side has made him known. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the light that came into the world to shine into the darkness. We who are Christians know this and think, well, this is just like the most obvious thing in all the world. And yet, this truth, and this is the basic nut of the gospel, that when God shines through Jesus Christ, He requires two things. For you to acknowledge you are a sinner, deserving of the wrath of God, and then to call upon God to save you. Which seems like the most simple, easy, why doesn't everyone do this sort of thing. And yet, Christianity, unique among all the, Christ, all the religions of the world, is always attacked for its judgmentalism and its meanness. And yet, it is the most gracious of all religions. It promises salvation in a way that no other religion does. It is light. If you look at any of the other world religions, so if you take like Islam, Islam says you have a bunch of rules and you must follow them. You follow them according to the Allah who has dictated them to his servant, Muhammad, who has recorded all these things. And in the Islamic faith, you have pillars of faith, you have different things you have to do, you have all sorts of things you have to accomplish. And at the end of your life, if you've ever seen cartoons that have those two angels that stand on your shoulders, there's like a good angel and a bad angel. That doesn't come from nowhere. That's actually part of the Islamic faith. There are a good angel and a bad angel recording all of your deeds for the end of your life so that they can hand the list to Allah, and Allah can look at them and compare your lists. But even then, even then, it is simply the will of Allah whether or not He will bring you into paradise or not. Your good deeds may indeed outweigh your bad, but in the end, it is Allah and Allah alone who decides if you will make it. So live really good life and hope that Allah is kind to you. There is no grace. There is no mercy. There is no light. It's all darkness. Or consider something like the Eastern religions. If you look at Hinduism or Buddhism, even though they differ in many ways, the end result of both of them is to look at your life, see that all these bad things are happening, think it's all just this passion within you that has caused it, and suppress all your passion. Press it down. Do not let any emotion come to the surface. This is the art of Zen, of Buddhism. This is uh, the chakra of Hinduism. This is suppression of emotion and passion. And in doing so, you will be enlightened. You will enter into this state of enlightenment. And yet even there, even the Buddhas who have gone before, even the Hindu priests will admit that even after that, there seems to be no relief from this problem of sin around us. It's not light, it's dark. But Christianity, through Christ, reveals the true problem, which is sin in your heart and in man's heart. Reveals it. And then actually gives an antidote to it. You can't save yourself. 
like Islam teaches. You cannot suppress far down enough all your passions and emotions. And even if you did, no one else does. The only answer is the mercy of God through Christ Jesus, the light of the world. We are the only religion who teaches this, and, and yet we are the most hated religion among those who do not follow it. It is constantly this way, and it has always been this way. Even in its earliest days, when the Jews were still the, working within Christianity, right? There were lots of conversions during the days of Paul. Even then, the Jews who did not believe worked actively to destroy the church, to kill, to put to death those who believed the one true religion. And it continued afterwards into the Roman world where Rome saw Christianity as a threat, even though all that is required of Christianity is that you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner deserving of wrath and that Christ is your only hope. Those are the requirements of our religion. And yet, Rome said, we will dispel this religion. It is a threat to us. And that has happened all down through the days, years, and yet something has been amazingly happening, and that is that the light has not been overcome by any amount of darkness that has ever been pushed upon it. That since Christ has broken into the world, the light of the gospel has went out with power, even into the darkest regions of the remotest areas of the earth, and it still continues to do it. There is no darkness, there is no person, there is no thing, there is no government that can ever suppress the light of the gospel. There is no angry person, there is no protester, there is no gun, there is no violence, there is no death that can stop the light of the gospel, ever. So then, how did Jesus display himself to the world? He did it through his works. Uh, he did it through the many things he said and did. All through the gospel of John, we have this sort of thing. So, for instance, in John chapter 1 that we just read, uh, no one has ever seen God, the only God, but the only, the only begotten Son who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. That Christ made God known while He was here. And what did he make known about God? He made known things like this. It's in John chapter 8. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. So what, what does that mean? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. 
But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. What was going on in the temple when everybody got mad at Jesus? He was teaching. He was revealing. He was bursting forth the light of God's Word. He was saying the law of Moses is light and you have ignored it. And if you would have not ignored it, you would see that I am the light. But there is no disagreement. There is no problem between the Testaments. They're not two different things to do different people. They are the testimony of God to lighten the world. And they do this by revealing. And God teaches us this. When Jesus spoke, things were revealed. Perhaps the most intense thing, although we don't usually think of it like this, is in John chapter 4, this woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, Jesus goes and he says, will you draw me some water? And she goes, hey, you're not supposed to talk to me. I'm a woman. I'm a Samaritan. And he starts talking to her. And then at the end, when she finally believes, so the woman left her jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Can you imagine having a conversation with someone at the side of the road who revealed your deepest sins and didn't have to ask you about them? Right? So he says, hey, go get your husband. She says, I have no husband. And he says, you speak rightly. For the man you have right now is not your husband and you've had five others before him. Can you imagine actually talking to Christ We tend to think of this as being just this beautiful moment where she just feels comforted and loved because God knows her. Can you imagine how she felt when a man she did not know said to her, I know everything about you. Everything about you. There is nothing hidden from me. And that truth, that idea is what she actually said is the most important thing that she wanted to tell people. Come meet the man who knows everything about me and told me everything I ever did. The gospel message is only half there if we don't tell people that the light of the world reveals. And he does it through his word. And it is uncomfortable. It is an unpleasant sort of thing. And yet, if we we get through it, If we are unveiled and we come out the other side and we say, God, have mercy on me, then the fact that we were undone at the beginning is actually good news. So let me try to give some idea of what this means. So this morning, all of you woke up, correct? What happens most mornings when you wake up, especially if it's like to an alarm or to someone waking you up and they flip on the light. Is that a pleasant experience? You go, ah, 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 oh, you know, one of those things. And depending on how deep into sleep you are, that either takes a couple seconds or it can take a minute or two for your eyes to like figure out how to work again. It's like they were dark. Now think about that. Is light bad? No. Light is actually very good and very useful. If you could imagine right now, if the power were out, 
And it was 7 in the morning, right? It's still dark at 7 in the morning. And you were trying to get ready, right? In our modern age where we don't have a bunch of candles and lanterns that we can light physically, all we have is, well, we have our flashlights on our phones. But let's say your, your phone's dead because the electricity went out. You don't have a phone. Now you're trying to get dressed at 7 o'clock in the morning with no lights, trying to use the bathroom, no lights, trying to take a shower, no lights. Light is not the problem, even though when we first wake up, it is an uncomfortable experience every day, every day. And I think this is just a reminder that when God reveals things by the power of His light, it's uncomfortable and remains uncomfortable. It's not as though you get used to having your eyes be dark and then open to light. You never grow old of it. It's not like when you're 100 years old, it suddenly doesn't hurt when someone turns the lights on. It does. This is similar to the way God has given us Jesus Christ, the light of the world. And he does it repeatedly to Christians. He wakes us up at different times. We fall asleep, right? Some of you during my sermons fall asleep. And they get woke up, right? This is the Christian life. You start to take a slumber. You close your eyes. You become blind to certain things you don't realize. And then God in His Word, through Christ and the power of the Spirit, you read and you go, Oh, oh, not good. Not good. And yet it is good. And we all know that when we wake up in the morning and our eyes begin to adjust, that the actual end result is that we will be able to see clearly, to put our clothes on, to get ready for the day, to walk. Or consider it also, if you have lost something in a dark place, right? Have you any ever been in a cave? And they do that thing where you're deep in a cave and they tell you to turn off your flashlights or put out your candles, and all of a sudden it is. You cannot, like, you can't see anything at all. Like, you can do whatever you want. You can, if you're mad at the person next to you because they bumped into you, you can give them, you know, a piece of your mind and your imagination with your hands, and they will not see. But if perhaps somebody flips their light on right as the moment that you decide to flip somebody the bird, everyone will see, Right? If you have lost something in a dark place, what is the only antidote? The only antidote is light. And we have lost many things, right? We don't clearly see what we have even lost until the lights come on. Our sins are very sneaky things. They find us out in weird ways. We might have done something that we thought no one knew about, would not affect anyone, couldn't possibly do anything down the road. And five or ten years later, we realize, oh my goodness, look at what that did. Look at what devastation that wrought. We all have things like that, particular moments in our lives that we go, I wish, of all the things, I wish I could undo that. That only comes through light. Some people do not have that experience of thinking they have ruined people's lives because they live in caves of darkness. To some people, it's absolute nonsense to think something you did at 25 could affect people a decade later. You just think 
what I did was what I did, right? So you might think, I just stole something. But then you realize that your crime combined with other people's crimes put a man out of business. And you don't find out for 20 years. Your crimes, your sins, need revealing. They need help. And the light of the gospel is that thing. So God, through Christ, uses His words. But then also, He does things. So, in John chapter 2, the first of Jesus' miracles is the wedding feast where they run out of wine and He turns water into wine. The end of that says this, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. What does manifested his glory mean? He showed his light. He, he made it known. He was light at Cana. And then throughout his ministry over and over, those signs, those works, those wonders were the thing which caused people to go, oh, this man is different. And it made them take one of two tacts. They either believed in him, as the disciples did, or they hated him. This is Peter's sermon from Acts chapter 2, after Jesus had left the earth. And he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. You saw the light. You saw the manifestation of the glory of God. He did it over and over in your midst. You all saw it. He's talking to people who were there. Saw people stand up and walk. Saw blind people receive their sight. Saw people who were healed of diseases. Saw leprosy cleansed in an instant. You saw it. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. When the lights come on for people, they either react in violence against the light bringer or in repentance and faith. This is the divisive power of the light of the world. Light is not just helpful in seeing dark things. It's helpful in dividing things. Think back to the creation. What was the purpose of light? It wasn't just to bring light to the things. It was to do something. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And the light he called day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Light is a separator. It does not just lighten up the room and nothing else happens, but it divides between what is lit up and what is not. You can see this sometimes uh, in things like fire. So this is a different sort of light. But if you ever watch demonstrations about how fire works in homes or in buildings, one of the most important things you need to know, if you don't know this already, is that you should leave doors 
closed in your homes, especially at night. Do you know why? Because fire has a very difficult time going through walls. And the difference between a closed door and an open door can be the difference between life and death. It's a separator. There is light blazing on one side, consuming everything, and safety on the other side. Christ is the same sort of way. We have a choice to make. Either either we trust that we will not be consumed by Him, or we will be consumed by Him. This is the power of the light of the gospel. Okay, so that is who Christ is, what He does. And then we have the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it affects the world. One of the things that is difficult to comprehend is the fact that people would say no to this light. And so God has given us some answer to why. This is in 2 Corinthians. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the mind, excuse me, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The God of this world has blinded them. It is veiled to those who are perishing. Even if the lights come on in a room, if you are blind, it makes you no difference. Right? If your eyes don't work and the lights come on, you won't even know. We tend to think as Christians that all we have to do is kind of utter this phrase like, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and all of a sudden the whole world will repent as though there's some magic in the words, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Or confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus is that Christ Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. And we think, well, all they have to do is just say, Christ Jesus is Lord and then we've got the victory. Well, a computer with a speaker can say Christ Jesus is Lord and a computer is not saved. It's not magic to say those words. What has to happen is something far more difficult than just preaching the gospel, speaking the gospel, talking to your friends about the Word of God. And it is this. Blind hearts have to be unveiled. And that is work that you and I cannot do. Cannot do. I could speak with the perfect clarity, which won't ever happen, but perhaps one day I do, on accident, speak exactly, perfectly the truth. And yet, if God does not open eyes, it will not be heard. And where is the biggest proof of this? Where is the most particular way you can see that no matter how clear you are, if God does not open eyes, you will not believe? It is in the ministry of Christ, the light of the world. Christ, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, lived 
somewhere in the neighborhood of 33 to 35 years. Three and a half of which were his public ministry years. And even before that, every word he said was true because he never sinned. Now think for a moment about Jesus' ministry. He spoke not just true things like I am doing, but perfect things. He did not stutter or slip. He didn't quote the wrong verse. He didn't say what might not have been said. He didn't have to apologize in a sermon two weeks later. He didn't have to do that. He never accidentally misspoke. He never made light of things that ought not to be made light of. He was never too serious or too soft. He never had the wrong intonation. Everything you can accuse a man of, your pastor of, Christ never failed to do. He never approached a person wrongly. He never said the wrong thing. Perfect words every time. And yet, there were many who did not believe him and were not opened and did not see the light and despised him and put him to death. We are easily discouraged when our words have no effect on the people around us. We are easily discouraged when our works have no effect on the people around us. We might work faithfully at our jobs, using good words, being godly, and it didn't matter. We might have a family, friend, who we talk to repeatedly and use true things all the time with them, and we are completely faithful, never faltering, and yet somehow, some way, they just never believe. It's because God must be the actor. And so that leads to the final encouragement for this. Jesus is the light of the world. He unveils, He, he lights us up. He, he reveals our sins in ways that we cannot even begin to fathom. And He gives us grace and mercy in the time of that. And we ought to proclaim this. But more than that, more than that, we must go to God in prayer and plead with Him to do the thing that we cannot do. Prayer is vital to the victory of the light over darkness. Sorry. There we go. Okay, Isaiah chapter 60. Arise. So this is a prayer. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. And the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. 
Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. To all those from Sheba, they shall come. They will bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Keter shall be gathered to you. The rams of Neboeth shall minister to you, and they shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. We must begin with prayer and end with prayer and be through with prayer like this. This is a pleading on Isaiah's part and a prophecy on the part of God. And our prayers would do well to heed the way the saints of old prayed, which was to read what God has said and promised and then pray that He would actually do that thing. Tonight, we're going to read and pray through Haggai the prophet. So, oftentimes, the prophets have revealing words, light words, and then building upwards. And so, here is the word of the Lord by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. And thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up on the hills and bring in wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruin while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills and on the grain and on the new wine, the oil and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and all their labors. And then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. We tend to put all of our work into building our house. What I mean is, yes, our physical house, but also our spiritual house. We are the ones, we think, that have to do all the work in order that God might save the earth. The Lord Himself must do it. We have to plead with Him to do it, or He will not do it. We have to recognize that our work cannot succeed even a little bit unless the Lord Himself unveils the eyes of the blind. It does not matter how much we work to build. We must ask God to do the impossible thing.
We could flip the lights on. We can say true things. Unless the Lord opens the eyes of the blind, there will be none who hear. This is the point of praying. This is the point of faith. This is the point of the Christian life. It is one of utter dependence from day one when we go, I am undone, to the end of our lives when we say, God, you must do it. Unless you act, there will be nothing. The Christian life is just one of a continuum. There is no difference from beginning to end. It is confession as he reveals things, and it is prayer that he would keep us, and it is prayer that he would save those around us. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Let's declare him. Let's preach him. Let's work to make him known. And let us dedicate ourselves to praying that he would open veiled eyes.